And I told the team, I said, uh, I think for this particular week I'm going to speak on I Quit Running in this Lenten series that we're in about I Quit. And uh, Robbie was there, and um, he spoke up right away, and he says, now that's something I can quit with no problem. <laughs> I hate running. <laughs> well, I can relate to Robbie quite a bit, but I know there are people, especially here, who love to run. I'm just out of curiosity by a show of hands. How many of you in this uh, congregation today have uh, ran in a marathon or some distance race, let's say in the past uh, three or four years? If you have, just hold your hand up. Amazing. Just hold them up for a second. We want to secretly loathe you, okay? <laughs> it's quite a few people. You know, distance running has really exploded in the last few years. But here's the thing about running a marathon. When you run one of those, you are running usually towards something. You usually are running toward a finish line or toward a you know, personal best. Sometimes you're even running to raise money uh, for a cause, which is awesome. But you're usually running toward something. And that's not the kind of running I'm going to talk about today. I want to talk about running from something or someone rather than running towards something. You know, life experience has taught me now that we all tend to run at some point in life. And all it takes is a few words, just a few words. Sometimes the words are, I'm leaving you. Sometimes it could be, you're a failure. Often it's the words like, I choose someone else, or I lied to you, or you're ugly. Sometimes the words involve a calling or a challenge like forgive that person or accept the blame or use your talents or move to this location. It really is my conviction that everybody runs at some point in life. It's also my conviction that for whatever reason we as humankind run from God more than anyone. Even if you're a Christ follower in this room today, I want you to think about the fact about how you may be running from God. We're going to look today at one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. It's about one man's flight from God. Everyone, I'm sure, knows this story. They've heard it probably at some point in their life. His name is Jonah. He's the main character. And you probably associate Jonah with a great big fish, but there is so much more to his story than that. We have a lot to cover here, so I'm just going to jump in to the very first verse in the first chapter. And it says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. When you read the book of Jonah, there's a word that you want to pay attention to, and it is the word great. It's used a lot in this book. It's going to come up again today. And let's talk about Jonah for a second so we understand him. Jonah was a prophet. He was not a priest. You know, priests in that day served in the temple. They offered sacrifices. They led worship. But a prophet was a different kind of character. A prophet was a reformer. A prophet was an activist. Prophets basically were troublemakers. They were always pricking people's conscience about God and about life. 
Now Israel, the nation of Israel, had a lot of priests, but usually, generally, they only had one prophet at a time because it's kind of like when you're married, you can only take one spouse at a time, okay? They could only stand one of them at a time, so they usually had one prophet at a time. One day of the Lord, one day the Lord comes to Jonah, the word of the Lord comes, and it speaks to Jonah. He's got a task now. It comes to Jonah and it says, go to Nineveh. Three little words. It's a phrase that would send Jonah on the journey of his life, running from God. Again, I want you to know, you will hear sometimes as well those little words. It may not be go to Nineveh, but it could be some other words. And Jonah, as a prophet, as a prophet of Israel, <laughs> he's thinking to himself, what does this have to do with me? I've had nothing to do with these other countries. They don't have a temple. They don't offer sacrifices to my God. They don't even know my God. But the word comes to him, and it's very interesting what it says. It doesn't say, go to Nineveh and preach to Nineveh. He says, go to Nineveh and preach against Nineveh. Now, friends, that's a pretty daunting task. Here's why. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. In the 7th and 8th centuries B.C., Assyria, Assyria was one of the great world powers. In fact, it was the great world power. It basically chewed and kind of spit out countries left and right. It would put the populations of countries that it defeated on what is called death marches. Basically, it practiced genocide. For example, when Israel was split into two sections, remember two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom which had ten tribes. There's a southern kingdom that had two tribes. The entire northern kingdom, those ten tribes, basically they were vaporized and completely demolished by Assyria. Assyria was hated so much that another prophet by the name of Nahum said about Nineveh, this is what he wrote in the Old Testament. He said, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. <laughs> Think about this. He says, Bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. And then Nahum predicts the fall of Nineveh when he writes this, Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? Let's kind of put it in modern day terms. Nahum is saying that you're so hated, you're so reviled, that when you're destroyed, people are going to stand up and cheer. Now to understand how Israel felt about Nineveh, think of another possibility like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Nazi Germany. Think of a power that killed your children, enslaved your brother, and brutalized your sister. Nahum says some very strong words about Nineveh. But where do you think Nahum was when he said those words? Nahum was back in Israel. <laughs> He's a long way from Nineveh. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he says, don't speak against Nineveh here. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Face them. Man to man, face to face. And I can just hear Jonah, like most of us, saying, listen now, Lord, uh, Nahum got to kind of taunt them at a distance. I mean, couldn't we send them like a telegram or something? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go to Nineveh. How did the word come? 
a burning bush, a still small voice, an angel, a vision, a dream. I mean, the text doesn't really say. I mean, did anybody around Jonah know? Like, was there a Mrs. Jonah? Did Jonah go home and say, babe, listen, uh, how did work go today, honey? And Jonah says, well, we're supposed to go to Syria and condemn them face to face. And I can hear her say, you've lost your mind, Jonah. It just says the word of the Lord comes and says, go to Nineveh. See, here's the thing about Nineveh. Nineveh was not in Jonah's comfort zone. And here's what we have to understand. Nineveh is the place God calls you to where you don't want to go. Nineveh is trouble. Nineveh is danger. Nineveh is fear. And what do you do when God says, go to Nineveh? It's the place you don't want to go. Because here's what I find out in life. God tends to do this a lot. (laughs) Now here we get to find out Jonah's response. And to get the impact of it, you have to understand where the cities were at in this story. This is kind of an important part. If you look at the map on the screen, you'll see where Nineveh was in relation to Israel. Israel was kind of in the middle of the map, if you will. And uh, God says, go to Nineveh, and he arises and he goes. But guess what? He leaves home, but he doesn't head toward Nineveh, which is basically due east. The text says in verse 2, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and was headed for Tarshish. Hmm, interesting. Jonah, the prophet, the man of God, runs away from God. Now, who would ever try to do something that dumb? See, one of the things about disobedience, one of the things about running from God, is it requires the illusion that I will never get caught. There's a great story about a college football player. I'm sure he probably went to the University of Alabama. He's kind of struggling in his classwork, and he's sitting across from the smartest kid in the class. And the professor says, tells him after class, he says, I think you cheated on the test I gave yesterday. And he says, why do you think that? He said, you're sitting across the desk from the smartest kid in the class. And the professor says, you got exactly the same score on the test. You only got one question wrong. The football player said, well, that could have been a coincidence, professor. And the professor said, yeah, but you both got the same question wrong. And the football player said, well, hey, professor, that could have been a coincidence too. And the professor said, yeah, but the best student's paper said, I don't know the answer. And your paper said, I don't know the answer either. (laughs) Definitely an Alabama kid. Part of what I thought about that this week is, you know, in the service academy, I know some of you have had sons and daughters who graduated from the service academies. If you cheat, you're just out. Like, that's it. It's an honor thing. Think about this for a second. Anybody remember in school trying to cheat and getting caught? Anybody do that? (laughs) You bunch of liars. What are you talking about? (laughs) Nobody raised their hand. I think one person over here. Thank you for being honest, okay? Are you kidding me? We're all going down that road at some point in life. And the truth is, when we get caught, if you're like me, you're more embarrassed and ashamed about getting caught than you were about having actually done the deed. Right? You're not cheating a lot, are you? And the truth is, I just wanted to have grades I didn't deserve and the opportunities that went with them. I wanted people to think I was smarter than I really am. 
See, somewhere in the mix there is wanting to have what didn't belong to me. And if we want to disobey the Lord, the first thing we have to do is to make sure in my mind, I have to make sure not to think about him being right here with me. I'm going to say it again. If you want to disobey the Lord, the first thing you have to do is make sure in your mind that you don't think about him, especially right here with you. I have to find a way mentally, and we all can do it. We don't even have to think about it sometimes. We can all find a way not to think about him. To eliminate the awareness of God's presence and his character and his will from our life. So what we do is we just think about other stuff. And if I want to do something wrong, listen, it almost always involves running from the Lord. Everybody in this room knows about it. Look again at the map. Here's the way it happens. I know God is asking me to go to Nineveh. I know God wants me to confront this person. I know that he wants me to have this conversation about the truth. But it's going to be hard and unpleasant and very uncomfortable. So I don't want to face it. So what I'm going to do is go to Tarshish. I know God is calling me to serve in an area. I don't really want to serve in that area. It's going to be humbling. It may be a little difficult. It may be a little scary. It may be a little bit out of my zone. I don't want to do it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run to Tarshish. I know God is saying, please let go of the grip that money has on your life. Please let go of it. Open your hands. Trust me to be generous. Do the right thing. See if I'll be faithful to you and take care of you. But you don't want to do it because you're afraid. So you get on a boat and you head to Tarshish. And it could be confessing sin. It could be acknowledging a habit, an addiction, a judgmental spirit. God wants me to forgive, not be bitter. I know all this, but I'm looking for a ship to Tarshish. And if I get on that boat from Joppa and I head to Tarshish, nobody will ever know. This is an amazing story in the Bible because Jonah goes down to Joppa, which is a port city. And he gets on the boat bound for Tarshish. And I love the little things that sometimes they tell in the Bible. One of the things it tells us is that he paid the fare to get on the boat. And he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish, which is a long journey. And we kind of skip over these details, but one of the things that it says is that he paid the fare. And that's a big deal because in the ancient world, money was still relatively new. Most of the people were still on a barter economy. And money was tremendously scarce among the people of Israel. Jonah actually, for whatever reason, had money. He had money enough to buy a passage, a long voyage out of his pocket. See, here's the deal. When you have mobility... When you have options, it makes it easier to run. Here's the dangerous thing about money, friends. Money will help you run. And he gets on the boat. And I want you to know that this is not just some kind of random geographical information. Tarshish is a significant city. Not because it's just in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Because in many ways, it is the exact opposite kind of city. Nineveh is a military city. Tarshish was not a military power, but it had huge wealth. 
In fact, commerce over the seas was kind of like a new technology. It would be kind of like, in our day, the technology boom. Being able to travel overseas and do commerce across the seas was a new thing, and it was a powerful thing. And many times it led to greed and arrogance and pride. So when you hear the phrase, a ship bound for Tarshish, it became a symbol of wealth in the ancient world. In fact, it comes up a number of times in the Old Testament. For those of you who like this kind of stuff, there's a passage uh, in the book of Isaiah. The Lord has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted. Listen, for every ship of Tarshish, the arrogance of man will be brought low. Over in the pages of Ezekiel, it says, The ships of Tarshish will serve as carriers for your wealth. With your great wealth and your wares, you enrich the kings of the earth. Now you are shattered by the seas. Tarshish was a big deal, and the ships of Tarshish was a huge deal. In fact, I've had to practice all week saying ships of Tarshish. <laughs> Just turn to somebody and say it three times fast, and you'll, feel, you'll know my pain. Ships of Tarshish, okay? Yeah. Hopefully they didn't sell seashells down by the seashore of Tarshish. Yeah. The ships of Tarshish, these were real they were literal, but they also became symbols of wealth and self-sufficiency, which Robbie talked about last week. Now listen, can you imagine that there was once a group of human beings so deluded that they would think that technology and wealth and a clever economic system could make them secure forever? Isn't that crazy? But Jonah runs away, and to put it in kind of first 21st century terms, Jonah ran away to Wall Street, to Madison Avenue, to Silicon Valley. Jonah gets on the boat, gets on the ship. People have been headed on that ship, friends. I can't tell you how many people have gotten on the boat, the ship to Tarshish. And he thinks he's running to safety, and maybe you do too. He thinks he's running toward opportunity and security but maybe, listen, maybe what really looks safe from a human perspective is not actually safe at all. Maybe the only real safe place to be is in the will of God. Even if the will of God takes you to Nineveh, to the scariest place on the face of the earth. It says, Then the Lord sent a violent wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose so that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo in the sea to lighten the ship. I love this because the word violent here in the Hebrew text, literally it's the word great again. The Lord sent a great wind and a violent, great storm. It's the same word that's describing the great city of Nineveh. But now, now it's God doing great things. Now it's God sending a great wind and a great storm. Now you think about this. These are professional sailors. Professional sailors don't usually panic. But these guys panic. They're so scared that they start throwing cargo. Now think about this. This is the way they make their living. In those days, literally one trip across the seas with your treasure, with your commerce, maybe could set you up for life. In fact, some people only got one shot at it. Just one trip, that's all they got. And here you are, headed across to the ship 
on the ship to Tarshish, and now the storm comes, and now they're selling off everything. And by selling it off, I mean throwing it overboard. Now notice this. I love this. The storm is so bad, who are they praying to? Everybody's praying to their own God. Now outside of Israel, the ancient world did not generally have this concept of monotheism, of one God. They thought, here's the way they thought of it. They thought of it like little tribal gods. You know, there was a God for each little ethnic group. Um, or there was a God over certain parts of things like nature and weather and stuff like that. So it's kind of ironic. You know, we like to think that we invented the concept of multiculturalism. Friends, this is a diverse, multicultural group displaying a very vibrant religious pluralism. <laughs> Everybody on that boat is dropping to their knees and praying to their God. Here's what I know. I know that when the sea is calm in your life, any old name for God will do. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, when a storm comes, everything changes. And you're hoping and you're praying that your God is for real. Anybody know what Jonah does at this point? Anybody, anybody, know, anybody remember where Jonah was at when these guys are praying? Yeah. He's in the bottom of the boat sleeping. And the captain of the boat is stunned by this. So he says to Jonah, how can you sleep? The old King James Version, I love it. It says, what meanest thou, O sleeper? <laughs> like Shakespeare. It's what the captain says. He says to him, what are you thinking here? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. This is like ironic. This is like awesome. This is a fabulous story. One of the ironies in this story is that a pagan Gentile ship captain is calling the prophet, the man of God, to prayer. <laughs> and the pagan is doing exactly what prophets do. He's saying it's time to pray, and the prophet is doing exactly what pagans do, and that's sleeping during prayer time. <laughs> I love this because God is up to something in this book. He's up to something really interesting. And Jonah does nothing at this point, so the sailors have this thing. They cast lots as a way of trying to find out What's going on? And the lots, however that worked, indicate that Jonah is the problem. So the sailors say to him, Jonah, what's your story? And Jonah says, well, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made this sea and the land. And this terrified them. <laughs> Literally what he says, it says this, and the people feared. Where's the word? Uh, great fear. And they ask him, what have you done? Great big words here. And then the text puts this little parenthetical insertion in. And it says this. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Now this parenthesis is very significant because something very deep and very scary and very wonderful and very awesome is happening. And you have to understand something about the words that are used for God in the Old Testament. These are Hebrew words. And if you note this the writer shows you something very spectacular. 
the most common word that's used is the word Elohim. It is kind of like a generic Hebrew word for God. It could be the God of Israel or it could be other gods, like travel gods or whatever. It always gets translated kind of with the word God. That's Elohim. Another word that's used a lot for God in the Old Testament is the word Adonai. You may have heard of that word. And generally that is translated Lord. Lord. But it's also not just used in relationships with supreme beings. It's used in relationships with people. Like, for example, a master or slave or something similar. It was often used even in marriage relationships way back in the day. In fact, we're told in the Bible that Sarah called Abraham, her husband, my Lord. When's the last time you wives have called your husband, my Lord? Anybody here? Yeah. See, we've moved a long way away from that stuff, hopefully. It's a very interesting thing. There's another word that's used for God. It's four letters. Here they are. Anybody know how that's pronounced? Not really. Kind of a trick question. Nobody knows how this is pronounced in Hebrew. In Hebrew, you don't get vowels. Okay, it's kind of like will of fortune. You got to buy it, right? In Hebrew, you have to supply the vowels in the text. This word that you're looking at was so sacred by Israel because this is not a title. This is a name. This is the name that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai in the sacred place when God said, This is my name. I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. It was regarded as so precious to Israel that to this very day in synagogues they will not pronounce this word because they do not want to treat it with irreverence. They love it so much that when the Torah is read in synagogues to this very day, when the reader comes to this word, this is the word that they will pronounce. Ready? Adonai. Now how many of you have heard of this word? Jehovah. Jehovah comes from taking the vowels from Adonai and inserting them into the YHWH. And to this day, nobody really knows how it's pronounced. See, by the way, when you see this in the English Bibles, like if you're reading your Bibles, it will often be translated by the word Lord, but you will see it, you will see it in capital letters, not small case letters. Okay, that's how you can know the difference. So when the word Adonai is getting translated, it's translated in lowercase letters. But when you come across the word Lord in caps, that's signifying that sacred name. Everybody with me? Everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay. Let's go back to the story. The sailors have been praying to this bunch of tribal gods, each to their own Elohim. And then they ask Jonah, what's going on, Jonah? And Jonah says, well, there is a God, and he's one God. God of Abraham and Sarah. He's the God of Moses and Miriam. He's the God who wants to be known by his people. He's the God who created the seas and the lands. Now that's language that all the Gentiles would know. And here's the reason for the parentheses. The sailors already knew that Jonah was running away from his God. But they figured that it was just some little tribal God of Israel. Like Assyria had their gods. Tarshish has their gods. Israel has their gods. 
they just figure that he's running away from his own little God. But then they see this storm and Jonah says, there is a the God. He's the one that sent this storm. He is real and he reigns over heaven and earth and he has a name and he wants to be known. Listen, and they fear with a great fear. And there on the ship of Tarshish, these men bow their knee and they come to know God in the middle of the storm. Let me tell you what's so amazing and ironic about this story. If Jonah had come to them in pride, like as a successful prophet, and said, men of Tarshish, I want you to know my God is bigger than your God. My God is better than your God. He's a supreme being. They would have dismissed him in five seconds flat because it would have all been about ethnic tribal support, uh, superiority. Jonah comes to them not saying a word about their God. He doesn't even want them to know that he knows God, Yahweh. He waited until he had to, to talk about God. And one of the reasons that they're going to believe Jonah, listen, is because he comes to him as one of the biggest knuckleheads in history. He's a prophet, and this will be the greatest Gentile conversion he will ever see. And it is Jonah's failure that God uses to bring people to faith in the storm. I'm going to tell you something. When you read the book of Jonah, it's a lot of things. But this is not a story about a human plan at all, friends. And your life, as much as you may think it's about a human plan, it is not about a human plan at all. It is about a God plan. And the sea gets getting worse, and your life may be getting worse, and it may be getting rougher. And the sailors finally asked Jonah, what should we do to make the sea calm down? <laughs> now imagine Jonah saying this. I can't even imagine this. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. It's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. This is awesome. For the first time in his life, Jonah is saying, I'm not going to run from God anymore. He says, God, whatever the cost is, I stop running today. Now, what's really cool about this story to me is that the sailors don't even obey him. They don't want to sacrifice Jonah. The text says the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. What? Your life is at stake and you don't even want to sacrifice a Hebrew stranger? The sailors on the ship of Tarshish have more compassion, more raw humanity on the prophet than the prophet ever had on the people of Nineveh. And part of what the writer may want us to hear, and Robbie's going to talk about this a little bit in the future, is he's tell, telling us that you have to be very careful about judging who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. You need to be very careful about judging who is on God's side and who is not on God's side. There is no room for pride, for a spirit of superiority, for exclusivity or judgmentalism when it comes to the people of God. The sailors of Tarshish have compassion and humanity and humility and are willing to try, try to save Jonah in the midst of the storm. I love this part of Jonah. 
They had all been praying to their own God. And now they pray, and listen to what they say. Then they cried out to the Lord. Now, you tell me, is that lower cap or is that big cap? Upper cap. Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, oh, Lord, have done as you pleased. Let me tell you something, friend. They started praying to uppercase God. No more little tribal gods now. Three times, the writer says it, three times he hits us over the head with it. And they take him to the side of the boat. <laughs> Can't even imagine this moment. They take him to the side of the boat, awesome storm, terrified sailors, runaway prophet, capsizing boat. Got to wonder what's going on in Jonah's mind. And they throw him in the sea. And all of a sudden, everything's calm. You know, sometimes you run long enough from God. And sometimes you live in the storm long enough you realize there's always a price to pay. It could be your behavior. It could be a relationship. It could be your calling. And then the storm hits. And it could be a storm of your heart. It could be a storm of your emotions. It could be a storm of your circumstances. But you know you're running. And the storm keeps going and going and going. And then you get to that moment. And I don't know what kind of moment it takes for you. But you get to that moment and you say, you know what? I just want to stop running. I'm not going to run anymore. And this wonderful verse in the latter part of Jonah chapter 1, and I'll end with this. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to Him. There's that word great again. They not only perform an act of worship, but they make a commitment in their heart, a devotion. A pagan boat becomes a place of worship. The ship of Tarshish becomes a temple of the living God. See, this wasn't Jonah's plan. This was the last thing on Jonah's agenda. He's supposed to be running in the opposite direction. And it turns out that these players on this boat, these sailors are not there as bit players in some little play. It turns out that God's story is super big. And when just when Jonah thinks he's running away from God, God catches up. The sailors come to know God, but for Jonah, he does something he needed to do for a long time. He stops running. And I'll say this. It is never too late to quit running from God, friends. Never, ever, ever too late. But I'll tell you something else. It is never too soon to quit running from God either. And maybe you've been doing it in this room. Maybe you've been doing it in obvious ways. Maybe you've been doing it in private, secret ways. And maybe today the Spirit is just saying to you, you know what? You don't have to live in this storm the rest of your life. You don't have to try to overpower it or over-negotiate. You can not outrun it. Just, you know what? Just stop running. That's a great day when you make that decision. Here's our prayer as we leave today. Father, my prayer as we um, 
in this time of corporate gathering, but certainly not the time of walking with you. That we realize how relentless you are in wanting us to be with you. And if it means a storm, it'll be a storm. But one thing about it, God, is your love never fails. You will continue to pursue us. So now take us, I pray, Father, into a world where a lot of people are running. And may we embrace them. May we whisper to them that there is an unrelenting God right behind them, ready to embrace them, weary and worn and tired and beaten, struggling. May they just, Father, stop running and start feeling the presence of your love and the goodness of who you are. I pray that in Jesus' name, the mighty name, the great name of Jesus. Amen.